In the last lecture, we got deep about the notion of equilibrium by introducing the Gibbs-free energy, which allows us to determine equilibrium for systems under realistic experimental conditions. In this lecture, we'll look in greater detail at just what happens when two different materials come together and how the chemical gradient plays a fundamental role as a driving force to get to equilibrium. Along the way, a certain type of pressure, known as osmotic pressure, can build up if a barrier is present. This pressure is extremely relevant in the life sciences, since biological systems are regulated at the cellul cellular level by osmotic pressure levels. It's the reason why not drinking enough water and drinking too much water can be bad for you. Osmosis is also a great concept to use for getting up nice and close to the concept of the chemical potential, which we learned about a couple of lectures ago. Remember from the last lecture that the Gibbs-free energy is a state function, useful for determining equilibrium in the most common type of experimental system, one where the pressure and temperature are maintained at a constant value. But before we go into the concepts, let's start by taking a look at osmosis in action. Now, I had wanted to do this as a live demo, but unfortunately, the process of osmosis is based on diffusion, which is kind of slow. And since I didn't want to make you wait the whole lecture to see it in action, we took some video and sped it up. So here I have an egg that I've soaked in vinegar overnight. What that does is it eats away at just the outer shell. To be more chemically specific, the acetic acid of the vinegar dissolves away the calcium carbonate of the shell. What's left is still the egg, but now it has only a very thin membrane holding it together. And the point of doing this is that the outer membrane of the egg that is left is now permeable to water, which means that water can pass through it. So in the next step, I place the eggs in corn syrup and immerse them fully. I could just as easily have used highly concentrated salt water, but corn syrup works just as well, and in fact, a little bit faster. I wait. Again, osmosis is kind of slow. But after soaking overnight, check out these eggs. It looks all shriveled up and deflated. The reason is that the fresh water that was in the egg flowed across the outer membrane into the salt water. And finally, we can reinflate the egg if we want. This time, I put the egg in a bowl with fresh water, and just for fun, I'll put some green dye in the water. Again, it takes some time, but after a while, the egg becomes completely filled with water. Actually, much more so than before. The water was driven both out of and into the egg because of a difference in chemical potential, as we'll learn in this lecture. So to conclude, the question might be, what do I do with a swollen green egg? Well, I'd say one of two things. You could pop it like this and create a big mess, or if you want, you could fry it up and together with some ham, serve up some truly green eggs and ham, thanks to your knowledge of thermodynamics. So that was pretty cool, but how did it work? We'll answer this question today by building up the concept of chemical equilibrium and adding some new concepts along the way. So let's get going so we can put some rigorous thermodynamics onto our inflatable eggs. In order to dig in, 
Let's examine a system composed of fresh water on one side and salt water on the other. We're going to place a membrane in between these two types of water. If the membrane is impermeable, then of course nothing happens. No water from either side can flow back and forth. But what happens when the membrane is semi-permeable? For example, as in the experiment I just showed you, what if the membrane can let water pass but not salt? Can I predict the equilibrium state for this system? In that case, the simple form of the Gibbs-free energy I defined in the last lecture is not enough to determine equilibrium. Because in the last lecture, I did not allow mass transport across the boundaries in the examples I used. But this is fine, and it simply introduces an additional degree of freedom that the system can use to further lower its free energy. When we re remove con the constraint of no mass transport across the boundaries, the system finds the additional degree of freedom of water transport, and it uses this freedom to lower its free energy. The modified equation for the change in free energy includes this additional degree of freedom, which in the end is just another work term. And it's written as follows. dg equals v times dp minus s times dp, dt, that's the same as before, and now plus the chemical potential mu for a given component in the system times the change in the number of moles of that component. The last term is a sum over all the different components in the system. And by including this term, we have now accounted for contributions to the free energy value by way of the transport of each component. From this equation, you can see that if the temperature and pressure are kept constant for a given process, then the free energy is governed solely by the last term. The last term was, again, chemical potential mu for a given component times the change in the number of moles of that component. Remember from Lecture 9, for an open multi-component system, in addition to the state variables like pressure, temperature, and volume, each additional component adds a degree of freedom to the system. This degree of freedom is represented in terms of the number of moles of each component. So in the case of this salt water and fresh water, dg simply equals the sum of the chemical potential of each component times its change in number of moles, with the sum carried out over all components in the system. In the example here, I mentioned that I'm using a membrane that allows the transport of water across, but not salt. This means that effectively the only mobile species is water. Let's refer to the side with pure water as side 1, and the side with salt water as side 2. I obtain an expression for the change in free energy, which is equal to the chemical potential of the water on side 1, that's the fresh water, times any change in its number of moles, we'll call that mu1 times dn1, plus the chemical potential of the water on side 2, that's the salt water, times any change in its number of moles, call that mu2 times dn2. But as long as there's no leaking, then the change in number of water molecules on one side must equal minus the change on the other side. So we can write that dn1 equals negative dn2. And if we then make a substitution, we obtain that dg equals dn1 times, in parentheses, mu1 minus mu2. And remember from last lecture, that one of the single most important aspects of determining the free energy change for a given process 
is that I can use this to find equilibrium for that process. When the change in free energy is zero, then the system is in equilibrium. This equation shows, therefore, that at constant temperature and pressure, the equilibrium condition is dictated by the chemical potential of the mobile species, here, water. In this case, equilibrium is attained when the chemical potential of water on both sides of this membrane is equal. This is called chemical equilibrium. Let's summarize for a moment here. We have the same exact molecule, water, on both sides of this membrane. But on one side, that water has salt in it. And on the other side, it doesn't. What we just learned is that the number of moles of water on each side can vary, and in fact will vary, until the chemical potentials of the waters are equal. But what is the thermodynamic force that drives the water to flow? In this case, it'll flow from side one, fresh water, to side two, salty water. The difference in the chemical potential, mu1 minus mu2, is what drives the water to flow. This difference is called the chemical potential gradient. And it can be thought of as a general thermodynamic driving force for mass transport of a particular species. Water flows down this chemical gradient until the chemical potential on both sides are equal, and, in this, gradi and, and this gradient no longer exists. You can think of it as analogous to a ball rolling down a hill. But in this case, instead of the force of gravity acting on a mass to cause a change in height, we have the force of chemistry acting on a species to cause a change in its number of moles. The chemical potential difference tells us how high the hill is. And now we come to a very important question. How do we figure out these chemical potentials? I've already mentioned in previous lectures that sometimes in thermodynamics, we can simply look stuff up. But when we have the exact same species, in this case, water, there are other ways to figure out the change in chemical potential of that species upon mixing it with another species. And to begin with, we'll start with good old entropy. Actually, you may remember that when I first talked about entropy, I gave salt dissolving in water as an example of a process that is dominated by the entropy change. That's because what happens is that when the water is surrounding salt ions, sodium and chlorine atoms, if it's just regular table salt, then those salt ions have many more ways in which they can arrange themselves compared to when they were locked up in a crystal of the salt. Since entropy is a measure of the number of degrees of freedom, or more formally, the number of different possible microstates for a given macrostate, you can see that the dissolved salt ions have a much higher entropy. So much higher that it dominates over other effects like the fact that the interaction energy between salt and water is different than between salt and itself. In fact, the interactions are weaker when the salt is dissolved, which without entropic effects would have us conclude that it wouldn't dissolve. But entropy takes over and wins the day. So again, you may remember this salt dissolution example from before. But what I didn't do before is quantify the changes. We're now in a position to do so by introducing our first model for the entropy of mixing. This is going to be a model based on statistical mechanics, which I introduced way back in the beginning lectures as a set of tools for calculating macroscopic thermodynamic quantities 
from molecular models. And in the one I'm about to present, we can use simple so-called coarse-grained lattice models to capture the most important aspects of the material's behavior. So what is a lattice model? Well, we start with, you guessed it, a lattice. This is nothing more than a separation of space into different compartments. For this simple derivation, I'll use a two-dimensional lattice, where each space is a square. We could come up with any shape or size lattice we want to, but for this example, let's use a six by three set of squares. Now, consider that we have two different components. Call them component A and component B. And we're going to fill the lattice squares in with one or another component, like you see here. Now remember, our goal is to use this simple picture to come up with a model that can predict the change in entropy of the system upon mixing. So what is the entropy? Well, remember from our lecture on entropy that it can actually be quantified and that it's equal to Boltzmann constant, Boltzmann's constant, or K sub B, times the natural log of the number of available microstates. S equals K sub B times log of W, where W is the variable we use for the number of states. So let's look back at our lattice. Suppose all of the squares were filled with only one component, how many different ways can this be arranged? Well, you can see that this is in fact the only one. I can only have one way for this to occur. Namely, all molecules of that component occupy a square and any changes do not change the nature of the system. So for this macrostate, there exists only one possible microstate. But now, suppose that I have N sub A, A molecules and N sub B, B molecules. The total number of molecules is n equals n sub a plus n sub b, and it will be equal to 18 for this example, since as I already mentioned, I have a six by three grid that will be fully filled up. The number of states for this system is defined by the number of unique ways these components can be arranged on the lattice. It turns out that this is a fairly simple problem, since it just involves counting up possibilities. Suppose I have an empty grid, and I want to know how many ways I can place an A-type component. Well, the answer is simply N, since there are N spaces available. And if I then place that one down and ask how many ways I can, can I place the next one, the answer is N minus one, since that's how many free spaces are left, and so on. And if you take in some pre-calculus, then you may be seeing the formation of a factorial here, which is exactly where we come to. Skipping over a little bit of math, the total number of ways in which I can arrange n sub a and n sub b components on the n lattice sites is exactly equal to n factorial divided by n sub a factorial times n sub b factorial. I won't go through the detailed math on how we arrived at this relationship, but you can try out a few possibilities on your own and see that it works. Now, two quick points. First, Remember that a factorial just means that we multiply that number times one smaller times one smaller and so on all the way down to the number one. Second, this expression assumes that the components of a given type are indistinguishable from one another. So if I swap two A-type molecules, we cannot tell the difference in the microstate. Okay, so now that we have an expression for the number of possible states W, we can determine the entropy of mixing. 
Remember, the entropy is equal to Boltzmann's constant k sub b times the natural log of the number of microstates. So if the two components are mixed on a lattice, as I just described, this expression becomes k sub b times the natural log of n sub a factorial times n sub b factorial divided by n factorial. By the way, just as an aside for those of you who may not have taken a logarithm in a while, the logarithm of a number is the exponent to which another number, called the base, must be raised to produce that number. For example, the logarithm in base 10 of 1,000 is 3, because 1,000 is 10 to the power 3. The natural logarithm is a logarithm taken in a different base. That is, the base of the number e. And in case you haven't seen that before, the number e is a constant that is quite useful in mathematics. It's roughly about 2.7. Okay, so what we do next is a little bit more math on this logarithm expression, which I won't go through here, but what we get to is the following expression for the entropy of mixing. It's that the molar entropy of mixing is equal to minus r times the sum x sub a log x sub a plus x sub b log x sub b. Notice that I've converted those n's into x's, which means I've gone from the total number of particles into mole fractions. As I mentioned in our lecture on molar quantities, it's easier to work with mole fractions. Now I know this seems like it was derived from a pretty simple model. So how could it be very accurate? Well, trust me, this is an extremely important result that is quite accurate for a wide range of materials and systems. And as a quick side point, how many possible states do you think there are for, say, a mole of water around its freezing point? It's actually astounding. There are, give or take a few, roughly 10 to the power 2 followed by 24 zeros microstates for a mole of water at that temperature. And when the water is heated by just a single degree, well, that number gets increased by 10 to the 22 times. For comparison, the number of atoms in the whole universe is only about 10 to the 70th. And a lowly old Google is just 10 to the 100th power. So when we talk about the number of microstates accessible to a system in thermodynamics, we are dealing with very large numbers. Okay, let's take a look at this function. Here's a plot of the molar entropy of mixing. By the way, don't let the word molar throw you off. It's just the entropy of mixing per mole. In this plot, we vary the mole fraction of component B along the x-axis and plot the molar entropy of mixing on the y-axis. Also, keep in mind that x sub A equals 1 minus x sub B and vice versa. So we only need to examine this as a function of one or the other components. But you can see from this plot that the entropy of mixing increases as the two components are mixed, and it reaches a maximum for a 50-50 mixture. Now, I know that was a bit of math, but it's a nice example of how we build simple models for our thermodynamic variables. And the result we came up with, where we have a logarithm dependence on the mole fraction, is something we use a lot in thermodynamics. But now, let's bring this back to the topic that I, started, that I started with, namely the flow of water across a semi-permeable membrane between fresh water and salty water. We were at the point where, based on the need for the system to lower its free energy and find equilibrium, that meant that it was going to try to make the chemical potentials on both sides equal. 
That is the chemical driving force for why water flows at all in such a setup. Returning to our wonderful free energy expression, we can write that the change in free energy upon mixing two components is equal to the change in enthalpy minus T times the change in entropy. And remember that enthalpy is a state variable defined as the internal energy plus pressure times volume. For a constant pressure process, enthalpy is equal to the heat transfer. In this simple example, let's ignore the change in enthalpy term. We'll call that zero for now. You can th think of this as meaning that our two components mix randomly, that there are no specific interactions that favor the different components to be closer or farther apart. As I mentioned for the case of water, while this enthalpy of mixing term is not zero, it's smaller than the entropy of mixing term, which especially at higher temperatures will completely dominate the behavior. So we're left with the change in free energy upon mixing being equal to minus T times the change in entropy upon mixing. Okay, now, how do we get to the chemical potential from here? Well, in the expression I derived earlier in this lecture for a system held at constant temperature and pressure, we had that the change in free energy dg is equal to the sum over all the components in the system of the chemical potential of each component times any change in the number of moles of that component. And from this equation, we can see, in fact, that the derivative of the free energy with respect to a single component, while holding all the others fixed, that makes it a partial derivative, is exactly equal to the chemical potential of that component. That's a really big deal. So I'd like to make it my repeat statement of the day. The chemical potential of a given component in a system is equal to the partial molar free energy for that component. That's pretty awesome, and it's very powerful. In our lecture on partial molar quantities, we talked a lot about the chemical potential, and we related it to the partial molar internal energy. But that was for a situation in which the entropy and volume are held fixed. And as we discussed in our last lecture, this is very hard to do in real systems. On the other hand, keeping temperature and pressure fixed is much easier to do. And in that case, we now know that the chemical potential is equal to the partial molar free energy. In words, the partial molar free energy is the change in total free energy that occurs per mole of component added, with all other components constant, at constant temperature and pressure. That means that the chemical potential of, say, component I measures the change in free energy caused by adding more of species I to the system. So the chemical potential for a given component of the mixed solution we've been talking about will be equal to the partial molar free energy of solution for that component, holding temperature, pressure, and number of moles of all other components fixed. Okay, so for component A, that will be equal to the chemical potential of the unmixed species of A, which we write as mu naught A, plus RT times the natural log of X sub A. Remember, when we talked about chemical potentials, how I said you could just look them up? Well, that's exactly how we find values for mu naught. We did it before in an example where we wanted to know if a given reaction was going to happen or not. But in this case, we now have a way to predict starting from those looked up values of the chemical potential of a pure component, how much it changes when you mix it with something else. This logarithm term, 
the one we've spent some time here to derive, can be thought of as the excess free energy of that component in the solution. And I'll remind you again, just for good measure, that this is only the excess free energy upon mixing due to entropy, since I've ignored enthalpy, at least for now. Okay, and finally, after all of that, we're now in a position to go back to our initial question. That was, how does the chemical potential gradient look when I put fresh water on one side of a membrane and salt water on another? Remember, the membrane only allows water to pass across, not salt. The difference between the chemical potential of pure water minus that of salt water is simply equal to mu of pure water minus mu of salt water. In the, case, in the pure water case, mu equals mu naught, since there's no additional mixing term. Whereas, in the salt water case, we've mixed in another component, namely salt. So mu equals mu naught plus RT times the natural log of the mole fraction of salt water. Let's suppose here that we're dealing with seawater, for which the salinity varies quite a bit, but on average it's around 3.5%. Or in other words, there are about 35 grams of salt for every kilogram of seawater. Given that there are around 58 grams of salt per mole of salt and 18 grams of water per mole of water, this gives us a mole fraction of around 0.01 for the salt in seawater and 0.99 for the water in seawater. If we do the math, we see that the chemical potential difference between the two at room temperature is equal to minus 8.314 times 300 times the natural log of 0 0.99. And the units here are joules per mole. Multiplied out, we arrive at a chemical potential difference of around 25 joules per mole, or in this case, around 1,400 joules per liter of water. Let's think about that for a moment. How much of a driving force is that? What I've set up in this problem is in fact the process of osmosis, which is by definition the net movement of solvent molecules through a partially permeable membrane into a region of higher solute concentration in order to equalize the chemical potentials on the two sides. Osmotic pressure is the pressure required to prevent this passive, this, this passive water passage. So water flows from fresh to salty water until the two sides have the same chemical potential. But I still haven't gotten a feel for how much energy is at play here. Well, one way to look at this is to suppose I want to reverse this process. That, in fact, is the leading technology today for creating fresh water from salt water. And it's known as reverse osmosis. And now we know how much energy that requires. At a minimum, we need to fight against this chemical potential gradient. So we'll need to put in 1400 joules per liter. That means if you run at 1.4 kilowatts of power, that's enough power for 2360 watt light bulbs or else a single hairdryer, then in one hour, you could desalinate around 3600 liters of water. That's actually quite a bit when you think about it. Now, unfortunately, today's best RO desalination plants do not operate near this theoretical limit, at least not yet. But power consumption has been dramatically improved over the past 40 years. And today, we're only about a factor of three to five away from this lowest possible value. So I mentioned that osmotic pressure is the pressure that builds up when we have two materials 
with different chemical potentials on either side of a membrane. How big are these pressures? I'll answer that by finishing this lecture with a technology some researchers are working on that uses osmotic pressure as an energy resource. What I just described is the fact that extracting clean, fresh water from salty water requires energy. But the reverse process, mixing fresh water and salty water, releases energy. Instead of desalination, we call this simply salination. And there's quite a bit of energy involved. You can just imagine, at every point in the world where a freshwater river meets the ocean, and that's a whole lot of places, there's a great release of energy. Not from the flow of the water, but simply by the mere fact that fresh water is mixing with salt water. To give you a sense of just how much, by some estimates, the energy released by the world's freshwater rivers as they flow into salty oceans is comparable to each river in the world ending at its mouth in a waterfall 225 meters high. I really like that image as a way to end today's lecture. It illustrates the power of osmotic pressure, and it gives a nice visual way to think of all of that energy that comes from the thermodynamic concept we learned here today, namely the entropy of mixing.